This morning's message is on the theme of Advent, uh, picking up where we kind of left off a couple weeks ago. Christ, the hope of glory, is gonna be the subject for this morning. I'm gonna read this uh, verse from Colossians 1, and then we'll pray. Colossians 1, look down at verse 26 and 27. The mystery that has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lord, we look to you this morning as the hope of glory, our hope, our treasure, the preeminent one, the chief, the fairest among 10,000. This is who you are. This season declares your coming and your greatness, and we bow in our hearts before you. We tremble before you. We rejoice before you because of your greatness, your majesty. We ask that the revelation of who you are would touch our hearts in a fresh way and that you would cause hope to arise in this spiritual family and especially in this hour that we find ourselves. We ask that hope would arise, that you would cause your people to rise up in confidence and rise up with joy and a new song in their hearts. We love you and we bless your name. Amen. Well, one of the Advent themes traditionally is to emphasize Christian hope. Christian hope, that's what we're gonna look at this morning, a little bit from this passage in Colossians 1. And to hope means that we're putting trust or confidence that good things will happen in the future. That's, in essence, what it means to hope. And I think right now in the church, the body of Christ, and in our nation, that there's a lot of people that are looking for hope right now. We are longing to be able to confidently put our trust that good will come in the days ahead. And many different people find many different ways of attaching their confidence to something that they're sure about. There are different avenues, there are different arenas that we as individuals, both believers and non-believers, we put our trust or our confidence We're hoping in something. We're hoping that circumstances change. We're hoping that things turn around. And everyone has their own measurement by which they're putting their trust that good things will come in the future. Paragraph B, there is a difference, a vast difference between worldly hope and Christian hope. We're gonna emphasize this morning Christian hope, but I just wanna take a minute and mention worldly hope. It's just natural hope. It's the way that we understand even the word hope and hoping. And worldly hope is more connected to wishful, wishfulness, wishful thinking, and often it has conditions that have to be met in order for that good to come about. Someone might say, you know, I'm hoping for a new job. I'm hoping that 
I get better. I'm hoping that things turn around. I'm hoping that my marriage is in a better place next year. I'm hoping that my finances are in a better place. And there's a lot of conditions that have to be met in order for that hope to be realized. It may happen or it may not happen. And in that natural sense of natural hope, it is not necessarily sure that those things are gonna come to pass in the way that you want them to or expect them to. But Christian hope is very different. Christian hope is the determined expectation of something that is sure. It means that it's as, uh, uh, it's solid and as real as the resurrected Lord himself. When you think about Christian hope, I always picture that scene in the book of John where Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, come and touch me, handle me, for I have flesh and bones. And Christian hope is attached to a confidence and a surety that we know is going to happen. We know that there is good that is going to come about when it comes to Christian hope. The Lord wants us anchored in this hope. He wants his people connected into a hope that does not rise and fall with circumstances or scenarios or troubles or trials that we face in our life. He wants us anchored to his hope. And often throughout the New Testament, the hope, Christian hope, is connected to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus declares with finality with surety that the plans and the purposes of God will happen, that he will return to the earth, he will defeat evil, he will establish his millennial kingdom on the earth, and the saints will rule and reign with him for all of eternity. And there's a confidence that comes when we put our stake and and buy into the shares, so to speak, of Christian hope, because it's not conditional Rather, the conditions have already been met. The conditions of the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our, of our lives, the transformation of who we are, the fact that we're sons and daughters and that we have a living hope who is Christ, who was raised from the dead, and you're gonna be raised from the dead in the same way that he was. You're gonna be given a body that's not under the ailments that you're facing now. The pain, the suffering, the tears, the the unmet, unfulfilled longing of the human heart, the Christian hope boldly declares through the resurrection of Christ that these things will turn around and that you will live and dwell with Christ in eternity forever and ever and ever. Well, the season of Advent is meant to produce something in us as we consider even the Christmas story, as we consider the incarnation of Jesus and and God becoming flesh. It's meant to produce something in us, and one of those things it's meant to produce is hope in God, that we would be confident, that we would trust in him. Christian hope, paragraph E, establishes our hearts in abounding joy and peace in him. But it's only Christian hope that can do that. Because in the 
worldly sense of hope, there are conditions that have to be met, and there's no certainty that you're going to have abounding joy or that you're going to have peace internally or externally. There is no certainty of that unless you believe in Christian hope and the person of Christ. It's remarkable that the Christian can have abounding joy and peace in every season of life. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how much favor and opportunity we have, or how much favor and opportunity we're missing out on, regardless of our social status or our reputation, what people think about us, how they perceive us, what our freedoms are, what our liberties are, whether they're good or bad, regardless of the season, the Christian can always abound in joy and hope. Paul prays this in Romans chapter 15. He prays it to believers whose circumstances aren't good. He's praying this about believers who the leader of their nation was incredibly evil and oppressive to them. Under the Roman Empire, Romans 15, he says, may the God of hope, see that it's the, it's not wishful thinking, it's the God of confidence, the God of surety, the God who breaks the power of death and comes out of the grave and says, look, my promises are as sure as my flesh and bones right now. There's nothing that can defeat me or deter me from my plans and my purposes. And Paul's praying that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And he's praying that to believers that are being persecuted, that are under suffering and trial. They're tempted to draw back in their bold proclamation of Christ. He says that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see here in this verse and this prayer from Paul that, that the hope that is within us, that to have that confidence, that unshakable confidence, to have that unshakable surety comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe this morning that the Spirit wants to touch your heart so that it would abound in hope? So that the spirit of confusion that is trying to assault us, so that the spirit of discouragement that's trying to give, make us give up, that's making us question the goodness of God and, Lord, do you see me? Do you see my family? Do you see my life? That the Holy Spirit this morning would touch your heart and cause your heart to abound in hope so that you would be anchored in something that is sure. There's only one anchor. There's only one unmovable rock in the midst of the storm, and the storm is blowing, and the storm is gonna continue to blow, and it's gonna increase. And there's only one anchor of the soul, and that is the person of Jesus Christ and his purposes for all the earth. And one of the challenges that confronts us during the uh, Advent season, the Christmas season, or the observance of the birth of Christ, right, is that we become overly familiar with the truths. And it's very easy to become sentimentalized. And we kind of quickly go to the lowest common denominator that everyone can agree on, you know. And everyone agrees that 
We need hope and light. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to say that. You hear that everywhere. We need hope and we need light. You know, and, and even the world doesn't have a hard time with the story of Mary and Jesus as these kind of travelers. They're poor. They're looking for a place to stay and to fit in, but they can't find a place. I mean, that goes right into the narrative of a whole bunch of different groups and people, not just Christians. You know, and they have this baby, and it's like they're trying to survive, and they need hope, and, and they need light, and that's what the Christmas season is supposed to be all about, you know, and, and generosity and, and giving things away. And it's so easy to acclimate to the lowest common denominator of this season. And it's so easy to acclimate or kind of push out the truths and the demands of the fact that Christ became a man and suffered for us. And that's what we focus in on during this holiday season is that we focus in on the person of Christ and what he's done. And I just find it so easy over and over again to just grow overly familiar and kind of adapt. When I think of that, uh, that propensity to grow overly familiar and adapt, how many of you grew up with well water? Okay, a whole bunch of you. Wow, that's amazing. Now there's a, uh, don't raise your hand on this, there's a particular kind of well water that, yeah, people are laughing, like, uh, I know what that kind is. There's a particular kind of well water that supplies a city or a small town or maybe just a home, and it smells like rotted eggs. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Some of you have not experienced this before. But it's real, man. Some towns they, they they live are supplied off this well water. You know, nothing. I'd rather have you know egg well water than no water. But you go to the town for the first time, and it's like something's different. There's a there's something in the air. You know, but the people that are in the town, God bless them. Like they don't know. They've acclimated to it. They don't smell it. They don't taste it. But we do. Us visitors from the outside. I remember going to this, these folks' home, and they were opening their house to us, and they were so, you know, whatever. And, I mean, they kind of knew because they hosted people in their house. They're like, oh, by the way, you know, the water's a little different here. Have you ever showered in something that smelled like rotted eggs? You're like, I don't know if I'm getting cleaner or dirtier. I don't know what's happening right now. And I'm gonna get clean and go out and I'm gonna walk around. Are people going to smell me like what I've just experienced, this baptism of eggs, you know? And then, you know, you're thirsty, and they're just like, here you go. Like, here's a glass of water, and you, like, go to drink it, and, I mean, it smells like egg salad that's been in your trunk. I mean, it's wild, man. It's just wild. And look, I've got nothing against these precious people or, you know, the way that we get our water. Like, that's not the point. The point is we have as humans the ability to quickly adapt to very troubling circumstances, 
you just kind of learn to live with it. I mean, I've heard that's what it's like to get old. Like, you get old, it's just like you just learn to live with pain. You learn to walk differently. She's like, yeah, my arm stopped working like eight years ago, but I've just adapted, you know? And we just like adapt to these things. And, you know, when, when Christmas comes around and we like hear the truths of the Bible and like God became a man, it's just like I've adapted. Like it doesn't touch my heart. It doesn't, it doesn't strike my heart again in a fresh way. And one of the beautiful things of tradition, because traditions can be good, one of the beautiful things of tradition is that it constantly puts truth in front of us so that the wonder and the, the truth and the awe of who God is would wash over us again, that it would touch our hearts, that it would cause hope to arise in the midst where Almost no, I mean, so few people have a sense of hope and have a sense of purpose. And every Christmas, you know, friends, family, everybody kind of gets together. We'll read segments of the Bible, the Christmas story in Luke chapter two. You know, Mary and the baby and going to Bethlehem and these, these truths that we see in this story, a very important truth Related to our Christian belief, it's called the incarnation. That's a fancy way of saying God became a man. And we so easily just acclimate to it. And we're just, we hear the stories, we read the story again, but we don't put ourselves into the story and remember this really happened. Like a virgin really conceived and gave birth to God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the creator, the ancient of days. You know, he knew no beginning. He'll know no end. He's seated above the circle of the earth. He, sold, he holds the stars in his hands. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain. Like Yahweh became a baby. The creator became creation. Like what deity you know, lots of people worship their deities and their gods and all this stuff. Like, what deity is out there that's thinking, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put aside all of my glory and prestige and power and become a vulnerable Jewish baby. That's, that's my plan. Like, that's my big plan. You know, the plan of the Greek gods is like throw lightning bolts, be awesome, flex muscles, win the Olympics, whatever, and Jesus, Jesus is just different. Yahweh is just different. And I want the truth of who our God is and, and who we love and who we serve and follow and pledge our lives to. I want that truth to wash over my heart again, to humble me, to make me worship, that I would bow down before him and I would just marvel at his plan. You know, he just likes when we marvel at him. You know, some of the awesome things we get to do, you know, down in the global prayer room is just marvel at God. Just look at him and then just marvel. And he likes that. He really likes it because he doesn't get very much of that. That's a very rare 
thing because lots of people, they either ignore Jesus or ignore God. I mean, that's the vast majority of humanity. Or if they do acknowledge God, it's like, I want you to do something for me. So there's this like contractual relationship with God, you know? And even down in the prayer room, we go sometimes down there and we're like, you know, here's the contract, God. Like, I made my way down here, and so, like, here's my terms, and you've got to meet those terms so that my life circumstances change. And, and, like, sometimes we just need to tear up the contract and just go in and realize, like, prayer and worship and the sacredness of God isn't for us. It's for him. We just come in before him and look at him and wonder and, and be in awe and just be struck and just... These truths, these phrases that we're gonna be gonna look at in Colossians, we don't have to like figure them all out. We just gotta let them overwhelm us. Just let them short circuit us. I love what Psalm 19 says. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And there's something about going out at night when the, when the sky is clear and looking at the stars and looking at the faraway galaxies and like a hundred million galaxies or something like that, they say. There's a hundred million galaxies with like a hundred billion stars in each one. And, and the, that marvel, see the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. He's so big, he's so vast, he's so glorious, and yet he became a Jewish baby. And, and in the Christmas story, it's like this vacillation of the heart of, of how small he is and yet how grand and expansive he is that's supposed to make us kind of freak out a little bit. It's supposed to make us feel kind of small and yet how can we be so small and insignificant but yet you love us and you came after us and you took on our own form. Human, vulnerable, Weak. So this story in Luke chapter two, it's kind of like the scenes of a play. You know, in every playwright, every, every person that writes a play, typically they have an underlying meaning or message that they're trying to convey. And so as you watch the scenes, watch the scenes, watch the scenes, if the playwright is, you know, brilliant and intentional, which many of the well-known ones are, they're causing the scenes have an effect on you. They want you to come away with something. They want you to come away with some, some truth or, or some way of seeing the world or seeing the world differently. They're trying to, to change your worldview. You know, they say that the best books, the best, best authors, they write books so that they change the reader. And that's what happens in Luke chapter two is like you see the scenes of the play of God as he's bringing them out before us. But you can, you can go and you can attend and you can just watch the scenes and you know clap when everyone claps and see the pretty lights and see the actors and how eloquent they are and how beautiful everything is and all that. But what about the underlying message, you know? And that's what Colossians 1, this little segment does. It, it takes us past the scenes and into the mind of the playwright, into the mind of the father. What are the underlying truths? What are the things that he wants us to come away with? How are we going to be different after we watch this play yet again in this Christmas season? 
Let's look at this. Colossians 1, you should be there in your Bible in verse 15. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus. This Jewish babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a feeding trough for the animals, he is the image of the invisible God. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, and I think Jesus is the only time we've had the image of something invisible. I mean, think about that phrase for a second. How can you get an image of something that's entirely invisible, unobservable? Un it's, it's impossible to capture something that's invisible. You can't take a photograph of it. You can't paint a picture of it. It's invisible. And Jesus becomes the image of that which is invisible, Yahweh. Yahweh made flesh, all that God is, all that God was, all that God will be, his glory, his majesty, his meekness, his humanity, his humility. He goes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things. By Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers. All things were created through him. I love this. And all things were created for him. Everything is for him. You are for him. You were created for him. You were created by his will and, and you exist for his pleasure, for his delight. He's before all things and all, in him all things consist. He's the head of the body and look at this last phrase in verse 18, that in all things Christ would have preeminence. And the, the, the playwright is communicating a purpose through Bethlehem and stable, you know, mangers and babies and Mary and Joseph and all the things that are happening in the story. There's an underlying message that is meant to just take our breath away. It's meant to just undercut all of our human rationale and our niceties and our sentiments and the Lord just wants to undercut all of that. And he says, this is all about my son being preeminent being chief, being worshiped and lauded as God. What does this reveal? What does the story reveal? It reveals three key things, this little passage that we just read about the Christmas story. Number one, Jesus is the image of God. He's exactly like the Father. And everything that the Father longed to communicate to us creatures, Jesus comes to communicate that truth to us. Very remarkable. A lot of people have an easier time relating to Jesus than they do the Heavenly Father. When they think of Jesus, we think of someone that gets us. Like he's relatable, and he is relatable. He gets us, he's, he's nice. The Father, not sure. Yahweh, uh, I don't know. 
There's a lot of stuff Yahweh did that I don't know if I'm comfortable with teaching in the children's ministry. And we have an easier time relating to Jesus. We're like, Jesus is awesome. Like whether I'm a prostitute, sinner, tax collector, Jesus is gonna hang out with me, man. And he just loves everybody. (laughs) He gets it. You know, but when we think about the Father, it's like, yikes. Like Yahweh? Like he wouldn't hang out with the prostitutes, the sinners, or, or people like me, you know? Like Yahweh only hangs out with the real holy people. Like Yahweh hangs out with Moses, and that's pretty much the invite-only list. That's as far as it goes. Invite-only Okay, we got the list. Moses, who's next? No one. All right, got it. Thank you, Yahweh. But Paul's wanted to communicate something to us about this, and and the Christmas story communicates something differently to us. No, Yahweh is manifest through the Son, and when you see the Son, you see Yahweh. When you behold the Son, You behold the Father and you see a God that is so overflowing with mercy and compassion and love and tenderness and humility that he beckons us close. And the Son is gonna bring the nations to the Father. You're gonna stand before God, Yahweh. Do you know that? And you're gonna stand before him clothed in white and righteous robes made clean by the blood of the Son without fear, without shame, without embarrassment, without shrinking back, without running the opposite direction like so many have from their fathers, Christ reveals the true father. And he calls us into it. Paragraph C, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator By him, all things were created, and through him, all things were created, and for him, all things were created. Now, to us, you know, if you grew up going to public school, we've all been trained like creation just came from nothing. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the prevailing thought. The ancient world didn't describe matter and energy and light and creation just evolving from nothing, just poof, it just came from nothing. See, in the ancient world, whoever was creator, whoever was the one that that did all this, that was responsible for all this, there was something that we owed them. You know, in all sorts of civilizations, they think that the sun, the moon, the stars, or a rock, or a tree, or whatever it was, actually gave them existence and brought them into being. And so what would they do? They would go and, and worship that thing. And they would go lay their gifts before it, and they would bring their harvest, and they would, they would lay it before the gods of the harvest who created the harvest. And so the statement that Jesus is creator sets him in a category that no other man has been set. It means that something is owed to him. 
that he's worthy of everything, that everything that is only came from him and everything that is is only for him. And that changes our life and that, that reality, it's gotta make our way into our discipleship and our evangelism. I just gotta throw that out there, that Jesus is creator and therefore, because he's creator, he's worthy of something and he's worthy of worship and, and that's where we came short and where we fell. Anyways. Paragraph D, verse 18, Christ is preeminent. Preeminent, I love this. It means that he is chief, that he is first, and the, that he is foremost. And the Father and the Spirit are working even now in the nations and in the church to cause Christ to be seen as preeminent. That's a different Christmas story. Because when he's seen as preeminent, it means everything else that's worshiped or seen as chief or seen as foremost and, and, and worthy of love and, and worthy of all this stuff, it means that all those things have to bow down and they have to come before Christ, the preeminent one. And they must confess over him and about him what the Father confesses over him. He says, you are my beloved son. Three times in the Gospels, the voice of the Father breaks out over the Son. You are my beloved Son. All my affection is on you. My heart is on you. And he says, I am well pleased with you. And the Father, <clears throat> excuse me, the Father is gonna reveal Jesus as preeminent that the nations and we, we now in this season would see him as beloved. We'd put our affections on him. We say, our soul is pleased with you. If you do nothing else, if you change nothing else in my life, if you don't give me what I want, if you take what I have away, whatever happens to me doesn't matter. My soul is pleased with you because you're preeminent. My life is for you. All things were created through the Son, for the Son. My life is for you. My hopes, my dreams, my, my aspirations, everything I am, I am pleased in you because you are chief. You are preeminent. I think people would like to keep Jesus as a baby in a manger, you know, it's a lot safer when he's vulnerable and small. But he's not a baby in a manger anymore. He's not a broken man on a cross. <laughs> he didn't stay in the grave. And he's not staying in heaven forever. Thank you, Misty Edwards, for that song. Because that baby became a man and that man is God and that man defeated death and he's coming again and he's preeminent. And all the story of all the hubbub of Christmas that tries to make it something else, that's what it's really about. He is the chief, he's Lord, and everyone's gonna get the memo by the end. Look at the last page under paragraph five. What does it produce? What does it produce? What happens? when we consider the preeminence of Christ? Well, many things. But Paul goes in later 
in this verse that we read at the very beginning. Verse 27, Colossians 1, 27. God willed to make known the riches of his glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a bizarre statement. All this stuff about image of the invisible God and creator and preeminent and all that and, and you know, God love us, we're just like, make it practical. And he goes, you're gonna actually have hope. That's what that means. You've got an anchor. You've got something to, to lean on. You've got something to hedge your bets around. He will be preeminent. And he'll raise you on the last day. The Christmas story so shows Jesus before us so that the Father could reveal Jesus within us. He brought Christ out, the image of the invisible God, right in front of us. And he goes, now I'm gonna take my spirit. I'm gonna take who I am. I'm gonna take me, Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm gonna put it in you. I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna redeem you. I'm gonna make you a vessel of my beauty and my glory and my honor. You're gonna be my witness. You're gonna be the temple of the living God. No longer will they come to Jerusalem to behold Yahweh manifest in the glorious temple you know that we're seeing from the, the court of the Gentiles way out there in the nosebleed section. They're not gonna do that anymore, but I'm gonna send you as living temples to the very ends of the earth. I'm gonna scatter you across the face of the earth. You're gonna go to Europe and Asia and Australia and to North America and to Grandview, Missouri. And I'm gonna show myself strong, the hope of glory and God takes up residence in our little weak frame, as crazy as it is that an uncreated God would come and bow down under the hedge of creation and take on our flesh. He says, I'm gonna one-up you even more. I'm gonna take up residence in you. I'm gonna make peace with you. I'm gonna cleanse you of all sin. I'm gonna make you holy so that I can dwell with you forever. Beloved, we have reason to hope. And what happens is, is that Christ lives in us. It becomes a guarantee of your future. Because the, the ticket has already been paid. It's already a done deal. It's already been stamped. Your passport has already been stamped. You have a glorious inheritance in all of eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one can take it away from you. Your hope is sure. Your hope is steadfast. There's no man that can take it. There's no woman that can take it. There's no evil that can take it. No one can take your hope because Christ dwells in you. Who can get in you and remove Christ? Who has the power to go into the hidden person of your heart? First Peter 3 talks about that. Who has the power to creep open that door and to steal away the glory of God and your redemption in him? No one. The Father holds you. The Son has put his blood over you as a covenant, as a statement. Romans 8 goes all into that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God and nothing can separate you from this hope. See, joy don't you already feel lighter? Don't you already see that there's a, there's a peace that you have when you're rooted 
and the preeminence of Christ, that he's purchased you, that he lives in you, that no one can take you from his hand. Amen. Let's stand to have the worship team come out. Lord, we give you all the glory. We give you all the glory and we have a hope in you. We have a hope. We have an anchor of the soul in you. Some of you in this season, your hope has been touched and you felt shaken or you felt confused or you felt fear about the future. And that prayer, Paul prayed in Romans 15, verse 13, the Holy Spirit can come and cause your hope to abound. Reconnect it into the purposes of Christ for your life. Get your hope out of circumstances, temporal ones, ones that will pass. Get your hope out of situations, relationships. Get your hope out of the temporal. Get it out of materialism. Get it out of financial stability. Where is your hope? And the Holy Spirit can cause your hope to abound. That regardless of what happens tomorrow, which we can't predict, the next day, which we also can't predict, that you would be anchored, trusting in God, trusting in him. He lives in you. He reigns around you. You've got everything to gain in him. And your future is secure in him. Some of you have felt shaken in this season. You're facing things in your life where your hope has been shaken. This morning, we wanna pray with you. And we wanna ask the Holy Spirit come and cause your hope to abound again in a fresh way. So if that's you, I just wanna invite as the ministry team starts here, I just wanna invite you to come up and, and stand on one of these two lines at the front and we have a ministry team and leaders that are trained to pray with you, not to shame you, but to call forth the true hope that God has in you, that we have in Christ through our life. Specifically, even those that are battling sickness in their bodies, that are battling sickness in other uh, loved ones, family members, friends, you've lost hope. You've given up. And we wanna stand before God again in a fresh faith, in a fresh way. Say, come Holy Spirit. Touch us, strengthen us, anchor our hope in you. So if any of that, any of you, that resonates with you, just come to the front. We wanna pray with you. I've just been feeling from Psalm chapter four, um, some, the verse it says that the Lord will cause you to both lie down in peace and give you sleep. 
And I feel like that there's been some that have um, been losing sleep and maybe it's a health thing or a physical thing or maybe it's anxious um, anxiety or circumstances. And so I just, I would like to pray for you. If you are losing sleep right now, if you're not able to sleep at night or if you've only had, you know, a couple hours of sleep, the Lord wants to give us sleep. He wants us to both lie down in peace and sleep. That's Psalm chapter four. So come forward or raise your hand where you're at. We'd like to pray with you. So God, I just ask that you would give to your beloved sleep. Lord, right now I ask that you would release the healing power of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in Jesus, that you would cause us to lie down in peace. The peace of the Holy Spirit would rest upon your beloved ones and that you would give sleep. Lord, I ask that you would give sleep the restoring that comes through sleep, Lord, the peace that comes through sleep, Lord, your, your health that comes through sleep, Lord, I ask that you would give to your beloved sleep. Lord, I ask for anxiety to go in the name of Jesus, for restlessness, for hopelessness to go in the name of Jesus, for depression to go in the name of Jesus, for circumstances that are causing us to lose sleep. Lord, we ask for the peace of Christ to rule and to reign in the hearts and the minds of this people. Lord, we ask for the peace of Christ that passes understanding to rule in the night over this people, that you would have a people that have found peace in your eyes, that we would be a people that have found peace, the peace of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would release sleep, that you would release and lift the burden of restlessness and anxiety in the name of Jesus.